our consideration is from our guy, Neil Postman, um, and amusing ourselves to death. Lynn loved this book so much, or the quotes from it, she went and ordered it. <laughs> and uh, the book turned out to be pretty good, didn't it? And found out that he had other books that I didn't even know about. But this one he writes about technological and transformation of learning. And he writes, the name uh, we may properly give to an education without prerequisites, perplexity, and exposition is entertainment. And when one considers that, save for sleeping, there is no activity that occupies more of an American youth's time than television viewing, and I would put with that now computer viewing, we cannot avoid the conclusion that a massive reorientation toward learning is now taking place, which leads to the second point I wish to emphasize. The consequences of this reorientation are to be observed not only in the decline of pot the potency of the classroom, but paradoxically in the refashioning of the classroom into a place where both teaching and learning are intended to be vastly amusing activities. And there you have it. He wrote this in the 80s, and you can see the results of it today. All people want is entertainment. They want entertainment all the time. And it's not just in your classrooms. If you don't put something in an entertaining fashion, people snooze. They don't have the ability to rationally think through things. You see it in the church. I mean, you see it in the church. I'm sure, and I've been in a situation, I remember when I started preaching, and this was back in the 90s, I remember preaching at a, we had this preach fest in Oklahoma, and there was four of us preaching. I got up, and I was first. I started teaching from the Bible, and I observed that everybody was like, <laughs> it, was just, it was a snooze fest. The other guy got up behind me. He didn't even open the Bible. He just got up and said, whoa, and the whole church came alive. <laughs> I mean, they had their tambourines, and I was just looking at this like, what the heck? And it was just, it was just fascinating to me to see it. Basically, basically, he really did not direct any attention toward scripture. And, and you could see it in the church. It's a real issue in the church where all people want is entertainment. And, uh, and the mind of people have been re reoriented toward that, that it's entertainment and it's entertainment all the time. And it's a really interesting thing to see, particularly as it relates to the church. <clears throat> so we come to our um, next to last teaching, uh, our um, spiritual gift and its own teaching. We've gone through eight, um, nine spiritual gifts, and so we have the last two, our teaching gifts. And so um, there are a couple of teaching gifts that are given to the church, and um, they're very important um, when you... Think about, I remember back in the day when I went to, um, when I joined FedEx, um, Scott wouldn't understand this because they've changed it since then, but we went, two weeks they sent us to, Fed, to um, Utah. I was in Portland, they sent us to Utah for orientation. And they had a teacher there, and the teacher spent, we spent 80 hours learning about how to do the job at FedEx. 80 hours. And so they fed us. I, it was the first time I think I had three square meals <laughs> in my life. And so there was so much food, I had never had that much food. But they had someone who was skilled in teaching that would train you how to do the job. And the, the focus of that was, was, was that. And so you can see that in the church there are people who are skilled that, through the Holy Spirit to teach God's word to get you to understand the word of God. It's not that everyone can't teach. But I'm going to tell you today, the person with the gift is more skilled than the average believer. And it's just something, it's not something that they've learned to do, necessarily. Uh, there are people who, uh, I, give, I think of uh, Clarence Larkin, who taught himself. He did an excellent job teaching himself. He had the gift of pastor teacher, I think, or maybe teacher, I don't know what it was. But he learned a lot of that himself and some of the things that he, he wrote. But... Um, the person that, that with the gift is skilled. The Holy Spirit is using them in a way. Now, these two gifts are better when you actually, you actually have to put a lot of work into it. You have to study. And for the person with the pastor-teacher gift, it's better if you are seminary trained. I really do believe it. 
my father tried to uh, get me to go to seminary when I first started preaching, you see. And when he first brought up the subject, I was just totally indifferent to it. Because I'm thinking, it's just the Bible. <laughs> How difficult could this be? <laughs> you know, that's what was my mindset. And he kept persistently telling me that I needed to go to seminary. Really, he got on my nerves a little bit <laughs> about it because he kept persistent. He was persistent with it, telling me that I needed to go to seminary. Well, having gone to seminary, I really can see that there are certain things, and you'll see it with the pastor-teacher gift, that you're going to be limited on if you don't have seminary training. I mean, there's some, some things you're going to have limitations with. doesn't mean that you can't use the gift, but there's going to be some limitations that you're going to have. And so that's going to require some training into perfecting the use of this gift. I've seen people who haven't gone to seminary who have done an excellent job of teaching, but you do see some blind spots that they don't have. I mean, that they, that they have. Teaching is a different one from pastor teaching. That's what we're going to look at today. The person with the gift of teaching, he's different, he or she, I think a woman could have this gift actually, are different from the pastor teacher in that they are teaching doctrine, and most of what they're teaching is doctrine that is not to be applied. So you have in Scripture doctrine that can be learned about what happened in the past, how God dealt in the past, and how he used and dealt with his people. And so we would label that, and some would label it, doctrine for faith, but not practice. So I believe what God did in the Old Testament and what he did with Israel. I believe it all. But I will not preach to you a sermon opening the Red Seas of your life. <laughs> it's not metaphorical. And it's not meant to be metaphorical because it's not for application, you see. And that's where people get off, the, off, 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 is they want to apply everything. And I understand in Scripture there are things that are just for your faith but not your practice. You see, and so there's this is where Christianity and Christendom has gone off the deep end. They will tell you that everything in the Bible is applicable. And so if it's applicable, then I'm going to have to allegorize to make it applicable. Right. And so that's where the problem has come. And so the person with the gift of teaching is skilled in teaching doctrine for faith but it's not something that we practice. And so we're going to see that in Scripture, that they are skilled, they have an ability to do that. The pastor-teacher is going to be more skilled in doctrine, not just for faith, but doctrine for faith and practice. So what we teach, and it's not that the pastor-teacher is not going to teach the other, he's going to teach, he could teach that as well, but I believe the person that has that ability of teacher is more skilled in teaching that faith doctrine than anyone else. And they have a yearning to do it, and they have a yearning that people understand it and understand it in its right context. <clears throat> and so then the person with the gift of pastor teachers we'll see next week, he teaches doctrine for faith and practice. Not only are you to believe it, but you can actually put it to use in your life. And so this person with the gift of teaching is a little bit different. And I do believe that women could have this gift. I, I do believe that, and I've seen people who have this gift of teaching both men and women, and we'll see it as we get started. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to look at these things and grateful that as believers <laughs> that we um, are provided a spiritual gift um, as a result of being baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And that gift was given to us for the building up of the body. And we're thankful that those who have the gift are very skilled as the Holy Spirit uses them to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Not to say that other believers can't use the gift, but they're not going to be able to use it in the way that the one with the gift can use it. And we're thankful, Father, for this, that you've uh, divided to the body the various gifts for the purpose of being able to build up and edify the body. And we're thankful that uh, you've provided, that you've not left any stone unturned in accomplishing your plan and purpose for the body and the things that you want. And we have all of the things that we need for that to, to be accomplished. And we're thankful for your provisions in this way. In your son's name we pray. Amen.
<clears throat> and so I hope that up to this point that you, you've recognized what your spiritual gift is and that you, if you're not already using it or you're not already recognized it, that uh, you're able to recognize what your gift is. And I think that there is a confidence that you will have uh, and being able to recognize your spiritual gift and knowing how the Holy Spirit is using you. A lot of the inclinations that you might be having is something that the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do. And I'll, I'll give you an example. This one who has the gift of exhortation. And so they may be led to exhort someone. And if you don't understand that you're, that's your gift, you might be saying, well, who am I to go say this to this person? And I've seen that happen. And when it's your gift, and you understand it's your gift, you may understand that the Holy Spirit may be leading you to say that. It's the very thing that that person needs. And so people are very trepid in this way, and they don't want to do things because they don't understand that maybe the Holy Spirit's leading you to do that. <clears throat> uh, you know, I don't want to use Joyce as an example, but she's readily available to be used in this way. But I've seen her say things to people um, that she was led by the Holy Spirit, and I think time proved that she was led by the Holy Spirit to say, and I'm thinking, don't say that, <laughs> don't say that, right? Holy Spirit led her to say it, right? And you know how I know that? The person responded in the right way, and the Holy Spirit really used that. So when you understand what your gift is, it, I think it gives you confidence to operate, that it's not just me saying this. So as I get up and I preach the word accurately, I can be confident. It's not just Kevin saying this. It's the word of God saying it. Right. And there's a confidence that you can have when you know that that's your spiritual gift. And so I hope at the end of this that you would have recognized what your spiritual gift is and that you would have the confidence to operate. And you know what I think will happen when you have that confidence is the body of Christ is built up. The saints that you encounter are going to be built up because you have been built up. And you have the confidence to operate in the way that God wants you to operate in the body. And each one of us, each person here has a spiritual gift. Each one of you have a spiritual gift. There's not one person here that is not a part of the body of Christ that doesn't have a spiritual gift. And God wants you to use that gift. And really, he desires to be energized in you to use that gift. And the only one stopping that from happening is, guess what? You. I, I am convinced when we get to the Bema Seat Judgment, a lot of the good works that God is going to measure what we did, those good works that we did for him was, a lot of it's going to be funneled through our spiritual gift. I'm convinced of it. <clears throat> and so it's a very important thing that we're talking about here, and I hope that you, you see it as such. So in Romans, the 12th chapter, Notice in Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> Romans chapter 12. And notice in verse, we'll start again and read down through verse 7. <clears throat> in verse 1 he says, I beseech you therefore, by brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, or really it's your logical priestly service, and so as a believer priest, which Peter establishes the fact that we're all believer priests, and so one of the sacrifices that we offer up, first and foremost, is our living bodies. Our bodies are living sacrifice. You know, it's funny, you find a lot of people who want to die for God, and you have all of these uh, zealots and fanatics. They want to die for God, but they don't want to live for him. It's easier to die for him than it is to live for him. You realize that? You only die once. But living is a, is a more difficult thing because it's requiring you to sacrifice yourself, which has uh, proved to be difficult with a lot of believers. And so it's your logical priestly service. And notice what he says in verse 2, and stop being conformed to this age. And so this idea of being this uh, soon schema, there is this ability that people have or this thing that people have where they want to have this outward appearance where they're fitting into the legal age, Paul tells the Romans, but be transformed by the renewedness of your mind. And so see, your mind has already been renewed. And as the believer lives there, there's a transformation process that takes place that you might prove what is the good and the acceptable and perfect will of God. 
For I say through the grace that is given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself, notice, more highly than he ought to think. So just a, a note on this because it's important to understand. So here is this issue of self-esteem, and you hear this a lot. Interesting that you don't find it in Scripture. I mean, I hear it a lot in the church. They don't have enough self-esteem. I would like, if you would, show me the scripture where you find that. Uh, maybe I missed it. It's just not there. Nowhere in the Bible will you find scripture say that you should have self-esteem. But here what you find is that there is a frame of mind that I can have in using my spiritual gift that is necessary. So give me an example. It's right of me to frame my mind in such a way to think that I should get up here and preach the word of God to you. That there's a frame of mind I should have in thinking that way. And it makes it, it, it really makes it more effective in me using my spiritual gift. And so you find this with a lot of believers who say, oh, shucks, I don't want to say that that's my gift. Come on, that's false humility. It's your gift. God wants you to know that it's your gift. You should have the right frame of mind in using that. There is no benefit of saying, oh, well, I don't know. I don't want to say that that's my gift. I found that with a lot of pastor teachers where you can see, clearly see that their gift is pastor teacher, but they feel like there is some humility that is meted out in saying, oh, shucks, I don't want to say that that's my gift. Are you kidding me? God wants you to know that that's your gift. There is a frame of mind you should have that this is my gift. But you know where it goes off the rails? It's when I reflectively think of myself above what is necessary in the use of that gift. You see? When I start thinking, oh, my gift is pastor teacher. That puts me in a level better than you. You see, that's where it goes off the rails. But it's right of you to have the right frame of mind and using your gift. I don't think you'll be effective if you don't. But I don't see self-esteem. Now notice, uh, so not to frame among yourself, or that word think, or not every man among you, not to think of himself. And that word think is where I'm getting that word, that idea of framing from. More highly than he, than it, he ought to think. Or really to see, don't frame your mind on the use of your gift above what is necessary. You see, above what is necessary is how it translates that. But to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. And so God gives the faith to each believer to use that spiritual gift. And uh, we're not supposed to go beyond that. Now notice in verse 4, For as we have, we have many members in one body, and all members are not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry let us uh, wait on our ministering, or he that teaches on teaching. And so here we have the gift of teaching. He that teaches, or the one teaching. And so you have that word of uh, use of uh, different kinds of teaching that, is, that goes on, uh, and you see it in the Gospels and in the Epistles, um, that he that teaches is actually from the word didasco, which is used in Scripture of, exclusively of teachers of some sort. And so you see it used in Scripture um, a lot, Notice in um, its use of the Lord, and let's look at John the seventh chapter as an example. John chapter seven, <clears throat> and in verse uh, twenty-eight. Now the seventh chapter of John is just a really interesting chapter, and some of the things, and particularly in John, are kind of comical in a way with some of the things that they that that has the way that they occur. And so this is one that starts off with the Lord's brothers uh, chiding him about going up to the feast. And he eventually goes up to the feast. Uh, but notice here in verse 24, judge not according to appearance is what he's telling uh, those at the feast, but judge righteous judgment. Then said some of them of Jerusalem, is not this he whom they seek to kill? 
but lo, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know this man whence he is, is, but when Christ comes, no man knows whence he is. Then uh, cried Jesus um, in the temple as he taught. And there's our word that is he was uh, teaching them. It's a, a participle form there. He was teaching them, saying, you both know me, and you know whence I am, and I am not come of myself. But he that sent me is true, and whom you know not. And so it's used of the Lord in his uh, teaching uh, ministry as um, during his time on the face of the earth. It's also used of the Apostle Paul several times. Look at, uh, if you would, in Acts the 18th chapter and verse 11. <coughs> Acts chapter 18 and verse 11. And so here we find the Apostle Paul in his second apostolic journey as he's um, gone through Corinth. And um, he encounters some problems <coughs> uh, in Corinth um, from the uh, Jews that are in Corinth. And uh, we'll pick it up at verse uh, 5 or um, uh, 4. And so he's in Corinth. Now, just to give you the backdrop of this, so he starts in Thessalonica, and he encounters, and you can pick this up in Acts the 17th chapter, and it goes down through 18. He encounters problems with the Jews in Thessalonica. He leads these people to the Lord and persecution breaks out. And so they run him out of Thessalonica down into Berea. And he goes into Berea and he teaches the believers at Berea and they believe and they search the scriptures to confirm what he was saying was true. And the Jews who were persecuting him came down into Berea and they chased him out of Berea. And then he goes into Athens. And he encounters problems there. So he's at Mars Hill in the 17th chapter, and he ends up having problems there. And then he gets down into Corinth. And if you go there, we were in Athens, had the chance to be there. And Corinth was not too far away from Athens. I think they said it was about a 50 or 60 mile drive from Athens. But they, we didn't go there. But they said, they said that it was nothing there anymore. Just a little canal uh, that remained of Corinth. But anyway... He goes into Corinth, and uh, by the time he gets there, he is, I think, he's spent. This is what we're going to find of the Apostle Paul when we see it, when we get into 2 Corinthians. Here's a guy who tells you in the second chapter of Corinthians about his struggles during his apostolic journey. You don't get that in Acts. It just looks like that he's just, except for this chapter, it looks like that he's, he's just unflappable. But he, he's going to tell us in 2 Corinthians he wasn't as unflappable as he seemed. And so notice in the fourth chapter, he goes in and he, uh, he's talking to these believers at Corinth and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. Now, I think he was leaving out the resurrection here. This is why they didn't have a problem with him. So then watch Silas and, and Timothy come to Corinth and he feels more compelled to add the resurrection. Notice what results as a result of that in verse 5. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit. And he testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, or really the resurrected one. Now notice, they respond to this because the Jews did not want to believe this. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he took off his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your heads. I am clean henceforth. I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed thence, and he entered into a certain man's house named Justice, who's uh, uh, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. And so here you see the Lord appears to Paul as he's teaching, and he has to reaffirm to him, it's going to be okay. Stop, really, be not afraid. I could translate that, really. Stop being afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. Now, why did he say this to him? Because I, I think what happened here in verse 4 and 5, I think Paul was reticent to tell the truth because of all the stuff that had happened to him before, going back into Thessalonica and before. And you think, 
you know, guy said, well, this guy, that didn't bother Paul. He wasn't ever scared. Are you kidding me? Notice, he says here, stop being afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And there's our verse there in verse 11, this word for didasco and the idea of teaching. And so there's the use of that word. Notice it's used in relationship to law uh, and uh, concerning the um, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.19. Brother Don has done a good job of uh, teaching um, this concerning the Sermon on the Mount, and I hope that you've been listening to him in his Sunday school uh, messages as he talks about this, because this is a very important thing to make a distinction on, and he's done an excellent job of doing it. And so here we see it with regard to uh, the Lord telling the Jews about and warning them about um, certain kinds of teachers who taught those not to observe the commandments. Verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass uh, one jot or tittle shall no wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled. And this is true. What we're in now is a parenthesis. And when God put a hold on the law, and he's going to pick it up again in the tribulation period, and he's going to again, put the, the Jews are going to be under law again. And we can prove that to you. Now notice in verse 19, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these, least of these commandments and shall teach men so he shall be called least in the kingdom from the heavens, but whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom from the heavens. So this idea of one who has the ability to teach, and they're teaching something. And here you see it in the Lord, and you see it in the law. Now the gift of teaching is uh, one of two teaching gifts that were established early in the church. Notice in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, it's listed in a list of gifts that were uh, given early on in the church. <clears throat> Verse 28, and God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings and helps. And we've gone through uh, some of these governments and diversities of tongues as to why some of those are not in existence today. The, the gift of teaching, uh, excuse me, the one with the gift of teaching is skilled in Old Testament doctrine. Uh, Old Testament doctrine. Not, and I would even expand it beyond just Old, more than Old Testament doctrine. But I guess you could say Old Testament doctrine would be a good way of saying it. But it's doctrine that is for faith, but not practice. Doctrine that is for faith, but it's not practice. And so you see that in Scripture. Um, and so that word, and going back into the 12th chapter, and I'll take you back there and then we'll go from there, just to establish the word is the, uh, for um, teacher, it's actually the word for the didaskalian. And so those are the distinctions that we're going to make here. And so uh, it's the one that is a teacher is the word, uh, did a, um, the one teaching in the didaskalia. Um, and so you have a specific one that is teaching in the didaskalia. Uh, and, and, and in order not to make a big uh, issue on the Greek side of it, I will say, and I tried to give you and uh, um, transliterate the word, because there's two words that uh, are important to know in the, making this distinction about this person as a teacher. You have a kind of teaching, as I've told you, that is doctrine to be believed in practice, and that is called didache. That's the word that is used to emphasize that. And some of that, it's, it's hard to, to make the specifics of because you can't see it in the English that that's the word that is being used. But I'll give you an example. There, was, um, there is a document, and I think you can pull it up online. I, I've pulled it up online before. It's called the Didache. Anybody familiar with that? The Didache is the teachings of the apostles in the early church. And you can actually pull this up online. And that's what it's actually called. It's called the Didache. It's the same word that we're, we're seeing here that is used of the pastor teacher and what he does. He teaches doctrine that is not just doctrine for faith, but doctrine for faith and practice. And so you see this used, and I would give the definition, did I K is the doctrine that is taught for the purpose of knowledge and practice. And let me give you an example of that. Look at Romans, the sixth chapter in verse 17. 
So there was a doctrine that the Romans believed about how to overcome their sin nature. They didn't uh, uh, know it before, but they, they gained a knowledge of this, and then they were able to obey it. Now, we understand it in Romans, the sixth chapter, this um, uh, knowledge about how to overcome your sin nature, no reckon and yield. And so you and I have a sin nature. We all have a sin nature. Cohen has a sin nature. And I'm sure you've seen it on display <laughs> as he's run around here. We all have a sin nature. How do you control this sin nature? It's like a monster that wants to get out, right? You've seen the Snickers commercial, right? And they blame it on hunger. Well, it's not just hunger. Hunger is probably what triggers your sin nature <laughs> for a lot of people. And so somebody said hanger, <laughs> angry. Uh, and so this, we have this sin nature. How do you control it? Believers have an ability to control it. And the Romans learned this ability to control their sin natures. The unsaved man, the only thing that they have to control their sin natures is probably conscience more than anything. Or some, well, law. I mean, just think, if there wasn't a law that said don't kill, there'd probably be a lot more murders. Well, in fact, there are a lot more murders because they don't really enforce the law in a lot of places. So do you see that that's a problem? And so here, notice the Romans in verse 16. He says, know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether it's unto the sin nature, I would say the sin nature that leads to death or, or uh, leads into a quality of death or obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were, when you were servants, you were slaves to the sin nature, but you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. See, there was a doctrine that they were taught and they yielded to it. And as a result of yielding to that doctrine, notice uh, that was delivered unto you being made free from the sin nature. See, they became servants of righteousness. And so there was a form of doctrine that was taught to them that when they applied it, they were able to be free from their sin natures. Unsaved people can't be free from their sin natures. A lot of believers are not free from their sin natures. A lot of believers don't even think about being free from their sin natures. They've just learned to live and cohabitate with it in a mutual agreement. And, the, and so see that, that word doctrine, that form of doctrine, and, and has that idea of doctrine not just to be believed, but it's doctrine to be believed in practice. Let me show you another example of this word. Look at Acts, the 17th chapter in verse 19, and you see a good illustration of it. That Paul, when he was on Mars Hill, they saw him as teaching a doctrine that was not just doctrine to be believed concerning idolatry. So these people had these idols and they worshiped these idols, but they actually said that this guy was teaching doctrine that was, at, that was uh, expected to be adhered to um, in, in a certain way. And so notice in Acts, the 17th chapter in verse 19, Paul encounters these guys and notice they took him to uh, and brought him to the uh, Areopagus saying, May we know this new doctrine, this new kind of doctrine, wherefore you speak of, where you, wherefore thou speakest is, for thou bringest strange things to our ears, and we desire to know, therefore, what these things mean. And so notice they understand down in verse 31, um, I think it's 31, uh, that, well, let me just go read on through 20. For thou bringest strange things to our ears, and we desire to know, therefore, what these things mean. For all of the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time and nothing else, but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hills, and he said, Men of Athens, 
I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. And then he goes on already. He says you, are, uh, you have a fear of demons, exactly. And, and that's was what was happening to them. They had this fear of demons, and because of this fear of demons, they were putting up these idols to appease them. And so notice, you can see that this is something that they expected, the practice was expected to accompany it in verse 31. And he goes on to say, for this God that he was pointing out to them, because he has appointed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. Wherefore, he has given assurance to all men in that he had raised him from the dead. And this is a little bit more than they bargained for. They weren't wanting this from their God. They weren't expecting some kind of moral uh, life to be lived. That's not what people expect when they're serving idols. And they saw Paul as teaching a doctrine that was different from theirs. Now, notice this Old Testament doctrine is uh, translated. If you go back to Romans 12, it's, um, they translated the one teaching... And notice, I think they translated here uh, in verse 12, uh, verse 7, I'm sorry, of chapter 12. He that teaches on teaching. But really, this tells us what the, old, the one with the gift of teaching is doing is that he's teaching. Um, the word there that is used is didaskalias. And it's use of doctrine that one believes but is not applicable for practice. And so this word is used 21 times in the New Testament for doctrine that is taught but is not intended for practice. And let me give you a pl- some good examples there, and hopefully these examples will help you to be able to see it. Look at Romans, the 15th chapter, in verse 4. So Paul says, what is the proper use of Old Testament doctrine? Well, one of the things that we find from Old Testament doctrine is that it teaches us what God did for Israel and from that, when we see that he, he met the promises that he uh, made to Israel, that the believer can have hope. Look at uh, here and you'll see this word didaskalia used in actually verse 4 of Romans 15. We then that are strong ought to bear with the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for good, for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee... Follow me. And just can I just give a plug for a message that we're going to have coming up on the other side of spiritual gifts. We're going to be talking about agape love. And that's what the issue is, is that you and I do not exist to please ourselves. But that we exist. For a whole different purpose from that. And, and I just honestly, I think that's where a lot of your lunacy is coming from. People who are so into themselves. But anyway, I digress. Verse four. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Um, that word for learning actually is our word, the uh, didaskalian, uh, for our teaching. And what you'll see when you see this is there is a teaching that you can get that is not for practice. We know it. When I read through and I look at what God did with Israel in the, in the past, I can have faith and I can learn a lot of things about the character of God, that God's a good God. God fulfills his promises that he makes. I learn a lot of things, but there's not a lot of application I'm going to get from that. Well, just think about it. We see back in the Old Testament, one of the, the provisions in the law was that you could not wear cotton and tweed mixed together. Does anybody here have cotton and tweed mixed together? <laughs> Well, you would have had an idea or you could have been stoned if you didn't know. You see, you could have been stoned if you didn't know. Ignorance of the law was no excuse. You could have been stoned for wearing cotton and tweed mixed together. Uh, Hope you didn't eat any shrimp here in the last week. I did. So I understand on the Old Testament, those are things that were for for Israel were they were um, prohibited under law. And it's funny to me with people who want to go back in the Old Testament and make application, they pick and choose what they want to apply and what they don't want to apply. See, because in the Old Testament, if you had an unruly kid, you were to bring that kid to the elders and say, I have a disobedient and unruly kid. And they all were to pick up rocks and they had a rock concert. And it wasn't the Rolling Stones. It was the Throwing Stones. 
And that kid was put to death. You see, it's funny how people cherry pick what they want to apply and what they don't want to apply. They, they pick and choose what they want to apply. So we understand this word here. It was written for our learning. It's doctrine that we believe. We believe all of it. I like the way that Dr. Schaefer said, I even believe the words on the page. I believe the page that it's written on. Well, he's kind of taking a joke there. But it's all true. It's what is applicable, you see. What is applicable to us today? And what I find interesting is as you listen to people who are misapplying scripture, they'll take one verse literally and they'll go to the next verse and allegorize it. Matthew 5 is a clear example of it. If your right eye offend thee, pluck it out. Right? That's what it says. If you've looked on the, excuse me, verse 28. If you look on the woman to lust, you have already committed adultery in your heart. That is the classic scripture that everyone goes to to prove that you can have adultery in your heart. Then they go to the very next verse, and if you're, since your right eye offend you, pluck it out. Oh, it doesn't really mean that. But what does it mean? What does it mean then? And who decides what's to be taken literally and what's not to be taken literally, you see? And so do you have this doctrine that it's just for learning? And notice, and what's written for our learning, that notice that we, through the patience and comfort of scriptures, might have hope. Now, as you look down in the next uh, verse here, I give you a few verses as to why that's important. Uh, the hope uh, of the gift of the teacher is to, to solidify the hope of grace believers through the accurate teaching of doctrine for the church's faith, but not practice. And so notice the hope of the grace believer is strengthened by the example of the patience of the Old Testament saints. And so we could look at the faith, for example, uh, the patience of Job. Um, and there is something that the believer can learn from the example of Job. Uh, the hope that the grace believer is strengthened by the example of the reward for endurance that you see, and the hope of the grace believer is strengthened by the encouragement that comes from uh, Old Testament prophecy. Um, let's look at Second Peter 1 as an example. Second Peter 1. And here, Peter is recounting something that happened uh, at the Mount of, Mount of Transfiguration where he and, um, and uh, James and John went up to the Lord on the Mount. And notice what he says here in verse 15. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in your remembrance. Peter puts, uh, I think he uses this word for remembrance more than any other writer in the New Testament and the importance of the believer remembering the things that he taught them. And a lot of the times you will hear people who are teaching you say things and we say them over and over and over again. And you just say, why is he continually saying that same thing over and over again? Well, I've heard that forever. And I'm sure I've said some things to you guys here that you can almost finish the sentence before I say it. But do you know they say in history, uh, church history, that John continued to tell people over and over and over, love one another, love one another. And someone asked John, why do you keep saying that? Why do you keep saying the same thing over and over and over and over again? Love one another. And this is from church history. I don't know if it's true. But he says it was said that he told them because you're not doing it. That repetition is an important thing. And he uses this word, Peter does, of remembrance a lot. Notice in verse 16. For we have not followed cunning devised fables when we were made known unto you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory that is from uh, that is his beloved son and whom this is my beloved son uh, and whom uh, I am uh, well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were on with him in the holy with him in the holy mount. We also have a more sure word of prophecy where whereunto you do well that you take heed as to an, unto a light that shines in a dark place unto the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture has been uh, by any private interpretation. Uh, people didn't make this up. But, old, uh, but for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, 
for the uh, men of God spake as they were borne along um, by the Holy Spirit. And as you um, see the Old Testament prophecy that, that uh, gives the encouragement to the believer, they can have a hope that this is not something that uh, is uh, done by happenstance. There's an important uh, importance in the distinguishing uh, doctrine for belief and practice in the belief um, uh, and distinguishing doctrine from, for belief from doctrine for belief and practice. And notice a proper understanding of Old Testament doctrine helps the uh, grace believer to live in an area of scripture designed to help him uh, to grow. And so notice in Second uh, Peter in 3.18, So when you and I are living by grace, um, and um, grace teaches us something that the Old Testament doctrine is not going to teach us uh, to do. And notice in verse 18, you see, but grow in grace or in a, in a sphere of grace and in a, an experiential knowledge or a, 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 an experiential knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him is glory both now and forever or it really is into into the ages and so there's a, a doctrine or there's an um, understanding from grace teaching that you can gain that you're not going to gain as you live by um, Old Testament doctrine. Notice in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 as well. 2 Timothy 3 and verse Go back, if you would, into verse 12. Yea, all, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, and knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which is able to make you wise, and I would say not unto salvation, but here the Holy Scriptures, are really it's the um, Old Testament Scriptures, are, make, are able to make you wise because of salvation, through faith in, our, in, in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is, is given, or really, all Scripture is God-breathed. Um, and so the Holy Spirit breathed it out. And it's profitable for doctrine... And so here we have this word for um, the Old Testament doctrine. And so this Old Testament doctrine will tell you what, uh, uh, things that, you, uh, that are true, that you believe. For reproof, uh, that word reproof is refuting error or rebuking sin. For correction, setting things back upright that are not up where they should be. For instruction in righteousness, uh, and so how to meet the righteous demands that uh, God has provided and the righteous demands of God. Verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect and thoroughly furnished or fitted or prepared for unto all every good work. And so this idea of thoroughly furnished. And so there's New Testament doctrine that would help to bring that about. Now, notice mis misapplication of Old Testament scripture destabilizes the believer. And so when I take Old Testament scripture and I use it in the wrong way, that it can cause issues. Look at Ephesians, the fourth chapter, if you would. And so we start off in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and he says in verse 11, he had given some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and I would say even teachers. And notice the result of this. For the perfecting or the adjusting of the saints. And so, I mean, you can see and you can follow. There's a really nice flow here as to what happened with these gifts that God gave early in the church and what they were meant to accomplish. For the adjusting of the saints. The word adjusting there or perfecting is a word. It's believers, it's almost like a, it's a compound fracture. So when you have a compound fracture and it's out of place and you reset it, you set it back. And that's the idea of what's happening here for the saints. The adjusting or the perfecting of the saints into a work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ uh, till we uh, 
all come to a unity of the faith and a knowledge of the Son of God and to a mature man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of, and I would say here, of the Christ, it's looking at the, the entirety of the body with Christ as the head, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind. And notice, I really believe here is of Old Testament doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they, by, where they lie in wait to deceive. And it's interesting, a lot of the heresies that you see today, um, a lot of them are coming from a misapplication of the Old Testament. And I also would see a lot of it is coming from a misapplication of the Gospels. And so there's a lot of people who don't believe that the Gospels would constitute Old Testament doctrine. They would believe that the Gospels today are doctrine for your faith and practice. And so we can show you on many occasions that, that were, there would be things that were said in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, that would not be applicable to, the, to today. And a lot of those guys did not understand basic things that you understand today. Well, Luke, the 18th chapter, concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They didn't understand that. If you responded to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in the way that they did in Luke 18, I would think that you weren't saved. But we know in John, the seventh chapter, that the Holy Spirit had not yet come and there were some things that were not the case um, during that time. Misapplication of Old Testament scripture leads one to contrary um, teachings, contrary to grace teaching. Look at First Timothy, the first chapter in verse um, eight. Just want to show you this. It's interesting. This is a very interesting chapter in First Timothy, the chapter one. So Paul starts off and he there is a, you have didascalia, which is Old Testament doctrine used here, but it's not the right kind of Old Testament doctrine. See, we're not against teaching the Old Testament. We're, we're, we're for teaching the Old Testament and keeping it in context and keeping it in its place and not applying a lot of the Old Testament. So what was happening here in Ephesus is that there were guys who were teaching the Old Testament in a wrong way. And we, we can see it here in the context because of what Paul's going to say. Notice what he says here in verse uh, 1. We'll read down through verse um, uh, 10 is where we want to go. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of our Lord Jesus, uh, save, our, our, of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our hope unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still in Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou might charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And here that word for no other doctrine or that phrase is no other kind of Old Testament doctrine. He actually coins a phrase where he puts heteros didascalia, a different kind of Old Testament doctrine. And notice that you're going to see that this Old Testament, this doctrine is of an Old Testament nature and it pertains to law just by the context. Notice in verse four, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than. So we have a bad translation here, but um, I think I would go with the NIV translation here actually over the King James. Right, Scott? <laughs> okay. I think the NIV says, rather than the stewardship from God, is how it translates it. But I would actually translate it this way. Rather than the dispensation from God, the one in faith. That there's a dispensation from God today that is governed by faith, you see. And they didn't translate it that way, but you see it there. If you have it in a linear, you can see it there in the original. Now, the end of this commandment is love out from a pure heart. And a good conscience and from faith on, see that word unfeigned, unhypocritical. You know what strikes me about people who are law driven? They're a bunch of hypocrites. They put on a face like they're actually living up to what they say they are. And they're not. And Paul tells you over the Galatians, they desire to make a show of you in your flesh. And they don't even live up to the same thing that they're telling you to live up to. You see? And so notice he goes on. He's, these things can't be produced by law. Notice what he goes on to say in verse six, from which some have swerved, having turned aside into vain jangling. That word vain jangling is just imp, just um, empty talk, empty, red, empty discourse, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say or wherefore they affirm. 
And you see some of these guys that are uh, legalists, or law teachers. I mean, they pound the pulpit, and they sound so convincing. Some of them sound very eloquent when you hear them talk. But they're teaching Old Testament doctrine, and they're teaching it for practice. And all they end up producing are people who have a conscience that bothers them, people who put on a mask, they're not what they pretend to be, and it doesn't produce genuine faith. But we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for a lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy, for profane, for murders of fathers and murders of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be anything that is contrary to a sound, and really you have that again, didascalia, a, a healthy Old Testament doctrine. And this seems to be the center of Paul's uh, warning to Timothy in his first and second epistles. Watch out for those who take the Old Testament and they misuse it. Watch out for them. They take Old Testament scripture and they try to teach it for application. And that's the problem. And what you end up producing, and a lot of the people who really misapply got the Gospels, they're producing the same thing in that they're teaching kind of a hybrid of law and grace. And you end up with law again. I, I did want to show you this. Look at Titus in Titus chapter 1. I wanted to go here earlier and I think I skipped over oh, where <laughs> talking about this and I, and I did want to point it out. Look at Titus chapter 1. Paul warns Titus. Titus is in Crete and Crete is kind of a ruffian area um, I, I don't know, maybe it would be, Dante's not here so I can say it, it's like be, being from Baltimore. <laughs> and so here you have these guys in Crete. Okay, he probably heard me say that online. You have these guys in Crete and they are, they're, they're just some bad actors. And so notice he is telling him how to deal with this and then you see this uh, distinction between these two words and that it's important in order there are people who are teaching law teaching in Crete. And he tells him to warn those people to stop it. And you have to understand a healthy uh, uh, use of proper use of New Testament doctrine to be able to exhort and to convince those who are teaching the Old Testament in the wrong way. And so notice what he says here in verse um, uh, eight. Let's pick it up in verse eight. Uh, go back a little bit. Um, verse six. If any be blameless in the husband of one wife, he's telling them what the qualifications of one who would be a pastor would be. Having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly for a bishop must be blameless. So it's necessary that a bishop be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, nor, not a striker, nor uh, given to filthy lucre. But a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word, uh, the faithful discourse as he has been taught, that he might be able by a sound, by sound doctrine or a healthy Old Testament doctrine, the proper use of the Old Testament to, uh, to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. You see, by the proper use of the Old Testament that you can actually uh, uh, refute or to put in place those who are teaching the Old Testament in a way that it's not meant to be taught. Or those who are, uh, who are contradicting and speaking in the, in the wrong way. And notice he goes on to say in verse 10, for there are many unrulers, uh, unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things they ought not, and this for filthy lucre's sake. See, I'm a cynic, and I, I don't, I sometimes wonder if law teaching is effective because it's, it's a good money-making thing. See, if I can teach you to live by law and to tithe, I got a good thing going, you see. 
I can get a lot of money out of you. I can know how much money is going to be coming into the church. And I mean, and that works pretty good. And you see, it's, you, you seem to see this with a lot of these, these law teachers a lot. But this idea of by a healthy Old Testament doctrine that you can exhort and you can convince um, those who are gainsayers. But anyway, so you have this didascalia Old Testament doctrine that is used for practice, but uh, for, for uh, faith, but not practice. And the person with the gift of teacher excels in this. And so uh, I would give the signs of possessing the gift of teacher that they are above normal ability to, dis- to study the word of God. They have the appetite for understanding Old Testament teaching. I mean, they, you will see with this person that they are in the Old Testament a lot. They desire for people to understand the Old Testament. They are skilled in teaching the Old Testament. And then their ability to encourage uh, grace believers to, by an accurate portrayal of events uh, in the Old Testament. And so they're able to take the Old Testament and really teach it in a way that you understand it, but they're not going to use it out of context. They're going to tell you this is what God has done. They put it before the believers. The believers is able to have an accurate portrayal of the Old Testament. And it's not something that is for practice. And so you have this guy with the gift of teacher. And they're, they're different from the gift of pastor teacher. And they're skilled in teaching uh, doctrine for faith, but not practice. And so uh, you see that in scripture. So next week, Lord willing, we'll come back with the gift of pastor teacher. And that's going to be our last spiritual gift. And then we'll talk about love because love is essential in knowing how to use your, your spiritual gift. And so it's not that you have a spiritual gift only, but it's how you use that gift is also important. And we'll look at that. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of looking at these things and grateful to the last believers that we have the opportunity to be able to use these gifts that you've provided for us and to use it in such a way as to bring glory to you. Thankful for the provisions you've given us. Um, not to be used for ourselves, but to, for the uh, building up of the body. And as the body is built up, every part of it will grow and, um, and feed, its, feed, feed upon itself. And we're so thankful for that potential. In your son's name we pray. Amen.